When we covered the subject of the scholastic period, I made reference to the fact that there literally were debates that were, from our perspective, so arcane that uh, uh, they seem almost humorous to us today. And then there were some arguments, such as Anselm's ontological argument, that you would have to take uh, a few Tylenol before you began to discuss them to be able to get all the way through. And I I sort of figured that would be enough to scare everybody off from it, but the reality is there were a number of people who actually wanted to cover Anselm's ontological arguments. And so we're going to take uh, a few moments to, to do that. Um, I'm going to be fairly brief on this. Um, you could truly get lost in in the forest uh, attempting to think all of these things through and there's a lot of categories of of thought that were prevalent in the time period that are not prevalent any longer which require you to explain things over and over again uh so we're only going to dedicate one class to this and uh but it is interesting and it you know if you really like bending your mind to try to uh, understand another time period and understand another way of thought or just understand a, a particular philosophical argument, this uh, this should be useful to you. When we there, there are some basic things, though, that you've got to get down or it's not going to make any sense. And that's one of the reasons why, apologetically speaking, the ontological argument is next to impossible to utilize. Uh, I, I don't I don't know that you could do a really, 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 really good job in the modern period, in the normal opening segment of a debate, to even lay it out, let alone do so in such a way as to be, begin to defend it. So um, that's why I don't think you'll find too many people running around utilizing the ontological argument in street witnessing or anything along those particular lines, because there are things we have to try to explain. So um, it is important to understand that in the thought of Anselm, um, you need to understand certain terms. Um, so we can think of things which exist and things which do not exist. And so we can think of things that exist. We can think of, um, uh, specific buildings, uh, cities, um, inventions of mankind, um, extraterrestrial uh, items such as the sun or the planets or other solar systems or galaxies, whatever else these, these might be. But then there are things which simply don't exist but might have existed. Uh, unicorns and yetis, and yeah, there might be some people who think, oh, no, no, I think they do. Um, but there's nothing in and of itself that would say that a unicorn cannot exist, just that it doesn't exist. It's mythological, but, you know, you could, you could have a horse-like creature with a single horn on its head. That's, it's not in and of itself, uh, outside the realm of possibility. Uh, it's not logically absurd to think of some of these things which do not exist, but they but they could have. Um, so, and I'm, by the way, uh, following the outline 
not of Anselm himself, but of a excellent writer in this field, William Rowe, R-O-W-E, in his explanation of the ontological argument in, uh, well, it's a textbook that I I used when uh, Mr. Callahan, uh, I took uh, logic uh, and philosophy from Mr. Callahan, and this was the textbook that we uh, we utilized. Um, and so to understand what a contingent thing is, a a contingent thing is a thing that logically might have been on the other side of the line from the side it is actually on. So in other words, uh, a contingent thing could be a thing that doesn't exist but might have, or something that might have existed that does exist but but might not have existed. Um, and so those are contingent things. An impossible thing is a thing that doesn't exist and could not possibly have existed. So that's the difference between a contingent thing and an impossible thing. These are aspects of Anselm's argument that are not necessarily a part of our experience, and therefore we need to cover these basic things. Um, In Anselm's thought, he makes a distinction between existence in the understanding and existence in reality. Anselm's notion of existence in reality is the same as our notion of existence. So, at that point, we and Anselm would be thinking in the same realm. We're talking about something that exists in reality. But where we don't have the connection, mainly because we haven't thought about it, mainly because it's not been you know, it's just not something that's a part of our modern dialogue, is the idea of existence uh, in understanding. Um, now, if something exists in reality, then I, I have to understand that it exists in reality. I have to have that thing in my mind. I have to be able to cogitate upon it. Maybe, you know, you could use the idea of a mental image. Um, let's, uh, let, let's think of, uh, uh, well, okay, let, let's use something that uh, you, you've all seen the sword that uh, William Wallace carried. I've actually seen it uh, there in Sterling. It still exists. Um, okay, you may not have seen it. I've actually seen it, but you've seen representations of it. And so it, it, it exists in your understanding. Now, it exists in reality, and I suppose it exists in my understanding in a greater way than yours if you've not actually seen it. Um, but there is that relationship between its existence in reality and its existence in the understanding. Um, so as a result, you could say that there are things that, contingent things, 
that actually do exist in the understanding that do not exist in reality. So we talked about unicorns. We all, in our minds, had a vision of a unicorn. It, understand, it exists in our understanding. So from Anselm's perspective, that is a level of existence. That is a level of existence. We generally would not utilize that category. But he is arguing that you need to recognize uh, that if you can picture something in your mind, you have knowledge of what it's supposed to be, that is a kind or a level of existence. So, putting that aside, just sort of, this will come up in some of the discussion. Uh, there are two more ideas that we need to consider before we can actually get to the argument. Because what normally happens is you jump into the argument and nobody has a clue what you're talking about because it's utilizing categories of thought that we are either not accustomed to utilizing or just have fallen out of use uh, over the past thousand years or so. And as a result, we just sit there and go, how could anybody have ever thought that was relevant or useful or anything else? And you just, you just go on from there. So Anselm wrote a couple of books, uh, Monologium and the Proslogium. Uh, and one of the categories that comes out of his writings, we need to understand or distinguish between a being than which no existing thing is greater and secondly, a being than which no conceivable being is greater. Now, hopefully already we sort of touched on this. So, a being in which no existing being is greater, we're talking about existence and reality, and then a being in which no conceivable being is greater, that's existence in the understanding. So these are two different kinds of uh, greatness of being, shall we say. One the understanding, one in reality. Um, and so Anselm's going to define God as a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Now, think about that for a second. That's putting the greatness of God's existence in the conception in, in your thought and understanding rather than merely in existence. So that's, in his thought, that's a higher realm of, of, of existence than mere, mere existence in the physical world. And of course, this is where Anselm is just on a, on a different planet than we are today. Um, because of that very thing, uh, we are so focused upon, um, the physical realm. We're so focused upon the sciences. We're so focused upon, you know, being able to document things in, in a particular fashion, um, that we just, we can't even go here. We can't even, uh, consider, uh, what Anselm is saying, but it is well worth 
while to enter into his thought to be able to understand what it is he was saying. Um, so Anselm's view is that whenever some, whenever someone asserts that something does not exist, that thing does exist in the understanding because you have, it has to exist in the understanding for you to be able to deny that it exists in reality. These distinctions, again, we don't make, and therefore when they're made in the argument, we lose track of it. And that's why we're covering it now. Um, so uh, to quote Roe, this idea says that if a certain being is God, then no possible being can be greater than it, or conversely, if a certain being is such that it is even possible for there to be a being greater than it, then that being is not God. So the definition of God is the being than which none greater is possible. If you can conceive of anything greater than God, then that's God. By definition. So God is the, is the greatest being uh, that can possibly be in the conception, in the mind, in the thought. Okay, one more key issue before we walk through the argument, and you can see how all of this fits together. Um, and this is this is the key element of the argument that philosophers, anyways, argue against. And that is that existence in reality is a great making quality. Existence in reality is a great making quality. <clears throat> now, what in the world does that mean? Well, um, basically, if something can be conceived of, in the thought, in the understanding, that also exists in reality, that's greater than something that could only be conceived of in the mind, rather than in reality. So there is a, a great-making element. It is, it is greater to exist both in the understanding and in reality than to exist only in the understanding. So that that is that it is it is a better thing, it, it, a greater thing would exist in both the understanding and in reality, um, because if you can conceive of it, then it might have existed in reality. So therefore, there's a, another step that it could have gone through, and therefore would be greater. And since the definition of God is of which no greater can be conceived, then um, you have that that insistence existence in reality is a great uh making quality so with that in mind and believe me uh, people have made serious arguments in behalf of uh of all of these things um they they truly have uh here are the steps of the argument point number one god exists in the understanding god exists in the understanding um, so there is a, an existence that is asserted right there. 
All right. That's number one. Number two, God might have existed in reality. So that means God is a possible being. Um, so, again, these are those areas of distinction. Existence in the understanding. Existence in reality. Um, if God exists in the understanding, God might have existed in reality. There is nothing, you know, God's not in the category of a square circle or a logical conundrum or something along those lines. If something exists only in the understanding and might have existed in reality, then it might have been greater than it is. This goes back to the great-making idea that we just talked about. So, if God exists only in the understanding and might have existed in reality, that is, he's a possible being, that goes back to point number two, then it might have been greater than it is. The great-making concept. Number four, suppose God exists only in the understanding. So, all right, so let's, with the first three accepted ideas, then you posit uh, another form of the argument. Suppose God exists only in the understanding. Suppose God's just something we think about, something men's made up. Uh, you know, as most atheists today would say, you know, it's just simply the collective conscience of man over time and, and, and things like that. Number five, God might have been greater than he is. So if you take the preceding points and you suppose that God exists only in the understanding, then God might have been greater than he is because he only exists in the understanding and to exist in both reality and the understanding is a greater thing. So, number six, God is a being than which a greater is possible. That's what flows from four and five based upon one through three. God is a being than which a greater is possible in light of him only existing in understanding and not in reality. So number seven, the being than which none greater is possible is a being than which a greater is possible. So you take the definition of God, none greater is possible, and the problem is, if God is a being than which a greater is possible, number six, and that means you take the word God out and you put in the longer definition of what God is, and that is the being than which none greater is possible, is a being than which a greater is possible. That's obviously a direct contradiction. That is making the first part of the sentence contradicted by the second part of the sentence. Uh, It is, therefore, number eight, it is false that God exists only in the understanding. Because supposing number four, suppose God exists only in the understanding, led to the inherent contradiction of number seven. Therefore, number eight, it is false that God exists only in the understanding. 
So, number nine, God exists in reality as well as in the understanding. Um, since it is false that God exists only in the understanding. Now, a an atheist would say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. How'd you get there? Again, the atheist in Anselm's universe, in Anselm's world, the atheist is already, by calling himself an atheist, he has a concept of what theism is and what the theos is, God is. And therefore, from Anselm's perspective, God already exists in the atheist's understanding. That is a kind of existence. But by definition, God is the greatest that can be conceived. If he doesn't exist in reality, then he is less than what can be conceived. And therefore, number nine, God exists in reality as well as in the understanding. That's what you get when you combine number one, God exists in the understanding. Uh, with number eight, it is false that God exists only in the understanding. There's the key. So God exists in the understanding. Well, okay, yeah, even the atheist has to admit that. It is false that God exists only in the understanding. He has to exist in something more than just the understanding. There's only two categories, the understanding and reality. So God exists in reality as well as in the understanding. Um, so the reason it's called the ontological argument is it flows from ontology, from the very concept of existence, the existence of the being of which no uh, greater uh, can be conceived. And that's why it's called the ontological argument. Obviously, the, um, the primary uh, criticism has focused upon the idea that existence in reality is a great making property. As well as the fact that you are utilizing a definition of God that fundamentally says that God is that which no being could be conceived of that would be greater. Um, but why would that definition in of itself have direct relevance to what must exist in reality? That those are some of the issues that are are raised at that at that point. But let's just let's just be honest. Very few people uh, today, well, not exactly a huge number of people in Anselm's day, had a a sufficiently robust understanding of philosophical categories, or even the argument itself, to, to really make heads or tails out of this. Um, and so, yeah, people back then had much longer conversations than we do today. Um, and th this was an, an apologetic argument in, in Anselm's day. There's, there's no, no two ways about it. Uh, it's, it's not so much that anymore. Um, it's, it's a very hard argument to state succinctly and, and understandably. But there you have it. Uh, there you have Anselm's, uh, Anselm's presentation. And so that does give you somewhat of a sense and a flavor of the kind of 
argumentation that the scholastics were famous for. This is actually a well thought through argument. And it, again, we find it strange just because it's so far outside the categories of our normal, our normal ways of thought. But you, you might look at this as sort of the best of scholasticism, whereas there was a lot of other stuff that hmm, did not live up to this level, shall we say. Is there, is there any validity to this argument? Well, in my experience, when you look closely at, at, at any of the, um, any of the theistic arguments, even when you look at uh, the, the, the Calum cosmological argument and things like that, it's all based upon a Christian worldview. These men were operating within a Christian worldview. And if you accept certain categories that are defined by the Christian worldview, then you can even make a defense of the ontological argument, but it requires that worldview first. Uh, I think the uh, cosmological argument makes sense, now, the Kalam cos cosmological argument, but it does so within a Christian worldview only. So... It's not, it's not valid in and of itself, it's valid within a particular context, and that context is provided by God as the creator of all things. So, does it have validity in a certain context? Does it have validity apologetically in the sense of, you know, let's memorize this and go out and use it on the... On the uh, uh, I was going to say the playground, but that would really make it bad. Uh, you know, and street witnessing and, and uh, university, you know, things like that. Uh, no, I, I certainly don't think so. But I suppose I, you could think of a couple contexts that, you know, it might extend a conversation or something like that. But again, it's, it's any meaningful argument like this is only going to have validity within a context that already recognizes you're dealing with someone who knows God exists. That's, that's the point. Um, and theologically at this time period, there was a, because the semi-Pelagianism of, of Rome, which had existed for quite some time now, there was a fun, there were fundamental errors in Roman Catholic anthropology that therefore indicated, you know, the impact I'm sorry, um, this kind of thought as well. So it's interesting to think through, um, but I don't know that it's uh, overly compelling uh, in the in the modern context. So once again, once again, number one, God exists in understanding. Number two, God might have existed in reality. God's a possible being. Number three, if something exists only in the understanding and might have existed in reality, then it might have been greater than it is. Number four, suppose God exists only in the understanding. Number five, God might have been greater than he is. Number six, God is a being than which a greater is possible. Therefore, number seven, the impossible uh, conclusion, the being than which none greater is possible is a being than which a greater is possible. That, of course, is double talk. So number eight, it is false that God exists only in the understanding. Number nine, God exists in reality as well as in the understanding. This is Anselm's argument 
and I hope that has been helpful to you.